CD4 Albert was in the stable with a shovel and a wheelbarrow. Go well, he said when Susan's shadow appeared over the half door. Um, yes, I suppose. Please to hear it, said Albert without looking up. The shovel thumped on the barrow. Only something happened which probably wasn't usual. <sighs> Sorry to hear that. Albert picked up the wheelbarrow and trundled it in the direction of the garden. Susan knew what she was supposed to do. She was supposed to apologise, and then it had turned out that crusty old Albert had a heart of gold, and they'd be friends after all, and he'd help her and tell her things, and... and she'd be some stupid girl who couldn't cope. No. She went back to the stable, where Binky was investigating the contents of a bucket. The Quirm College for Young Ladies encouraged self-reliance and logical thought. Her parents had sent her there for that reason. They'd assumed that insulating her from the fluffy edges of the world was the safest thing to do. In the circumstances, this was like not telling people about self-defence so that no one would ever attack them. Unseen University was used to eccentricity among the faculty. After all, humans derive their notions of what it means to be a normal human being by constant reference to the humans around them. And when those humans are other wizards, the spiral can only wiggle downwards. The librarian was an orangutan and no one thought that that was at all odd. The reader in esoteric studies spent so much time reading in what the bursar referred to as the smallest room that he was generally referred to as the reader in the lavatory, even on official documents. The smallest room in Unseen University is in fact a broom cupboard on the fourth floor. He really meant the privy. The reader had a theory that all the really good books in any building, at least all the really funny ones, the ones with cartoons about cows and dogs, and captions like, as soon as he saw the duck, Elmer knew it was going to be a bad day, gravitate to a pile in the privy, but no one ever has time to read all of them, or even knows how they came to be there. His research was causing extreme constipation, and a queue outside the door every morning. The bursar himself, in any normal society, would have been considered more unglued than a used stamp in a downpour. The dean had spent seventeen years writing a treatise on the use of the syllable enk in levitation spells of the early confused period. The arch-chancellor, who regularly used the long gallery above the great hall for archery practice, and had accidentally shot the bursar twice, thought the whole faculty was as crazy as loons, whatever a loon was. Not enough fresh air, he'd say. Too much sitting around indoors rots the brain. More often, he'd say, duck! None of them, apart from Ridcully and the librarian, were early risers. Breakfast, if it happened at all, happened around mid-morning. Wizards lined the buffet, lifting the big silver lids of the tureens and wincing at every clang. Ridcully liked big, greasy breakfasts, especially if they included those slightly translucent sausages with the green flecks that you can only hope is a herb of some sort. Since it was the Arch-Chancellor's prerogative to choose the menu, many of the more squeamish wizards had stopped eating breakfast altogether and got through the day just on lunch, tea, dinner and supper, and the occasional snack. So there weren't too many in the Great Hall this morning. Besides, it was a bit draughty. Workmen were busy somewhere up on the roof. Ridcully put down his fork. "'All right. Who's doing it?' he said. "'Own up, that man!' "'Doing what, Arch-Chancellor?' said the senior wrangler. "'Someone's tapping his foot!' The wizards looked along the table. The dean was staring happily into space. "'Dean?' said the senior wrangler. The dean's left hand was held not far from his mouth. The other was making rhythmic stroking motions somewhere in the region of his kidneys. "'I don't know what he thinks he's doing,' said Ridcully, "'but it looks unhygienic to me.' "'I think he's playing an invisible banjo, Arch-Chancellor,' said the lecturer in recent runes. "'Well, it's quiet, at least,' said Ridcully. He looked at the hole in the roof, which was letting unaccustomed daylight into the hall. "'Anyone seen the librarian?' The orangutan was busy. He had holed up in one of the library's cellars, which he currently used as a general workshop and book hospital.' There were various presses and guillotines, a bench full of tins of nasty substances where he made his own binding glue, and all the other tedious cosmetics of the muse of literature. He'd brought a book down with them. It had taken even him several hours to find it. The library didn't only contain magical books, the ones which are chained to their shelves and are very dangerous. 
It also contained perfectly ordinary books printed on commonplace paper in mundane ink. It would be a mistake to think that they weren't also dangerous, just because reading them didn't make fireworks go off in the sky. Reading them sometimes did the more dangerous trick of making fireworks go off in the privacy of the reader's brain. For example, the big volume open in front of him contained some of the collected drawings of Leonard of Quirm, skilled artist and certified genius with a mind that wandered so much it came back with souvenirs. Leonard's books were full of sketches, of kittens, of the way water flows, of the wives of influential Ankh-Morporkian merchants whose portraits have provided his means of making a living. But Leonard had been a genius and was deeply sensitive to the wonders of the world, so the margins were full of detailed doodles of whatever was on his mind at that moment. Vast water-powered engines for bringing down city walls on the heads of the enemy. New types of siege guns for pumping flaming oil over the enemy. Gunpowder rockets that showered the enemy with burning phosphorus. And other manufactures of the Age of Reason. And there had been something else. The librarian had noticed it in passing once before, and had been slightly puzzled by it. It seemed out of place, and didn't appear to do anything to the enemy at all. His hairy hand thumbed through the pages. Ah, here it was. Yes, ah, yes. It spoke to him in the language of the beat. The Arch-Chancellor made himself comfortable at his snooker table, he long ago got rid of the official desk. A snooker table was much to be preferred. Things didn't fall off the edge. There were a number of handy pockets to keep sweets and things in. And when he was bored, he could shovel the paperwork off and set up trick shots. He was a wizard. Trick shots for a wizard aren't the old three times round the table jobs. His best one was once off the cushion, once off a seagull, once off the back of the head of the bursar who'd been walking along the corridor outside last Tuesday. A bit of a temporal spin there and a tricky rebound off the ceiling. He'd missed sinking the actual shot by a whisker, but it had been pretty tricky, even so. He never bothered to shovel the paperwork back on afterwards. In his experience, anything really important never got written down, because by then people were too busy shouting. He picked up his pen and started to write. He was composing his memoirs. He'd got as far as the title. Along the Ark, with bow, rod, and staff with a knob on the end. Not many people realise, he wrote, that the River Ark has a large and varied piffsine population. And this was true. Nature can adapt to practically anything. There were fish evolved to live in the river. They looked like a cross between a soft-shelled crab and an industrial vacuum cleaner, and tended to explode in fresh water, and what you had to use for bait was nobody's business. But they were fish, and a sportsman like Ridcully never cared about what the quarry tasted like. He flung down the pen and stormed along the corridor into the dean's office. What the hell's that? he shouted. The dean jumped. It's, it's, it's a guitar, Arch-Chancellor, said the dean, walking hurriedly backwards as Ridcully approached. I just bought it. I can see that, I can hear that. What was it you were trying to do? I was practising, uh, riffs, said the dean. He waved a badly printed woodcut defensively in Ridcully's face. The arch-chancellor grabbed it. Blurt Weedown's guitar primer, he read. Play your way to success in three easy lefsons and eighteen hard lefsons. Well, I've nothing against guitars, pleasant airs, aspying young maidens one morning in May and so on, but that wasn't playing, that was just noise. I mean, what was it supposed to be? A lick based on an E pentatonic scale using the major seventh as a passing tone, said the dean. The arch-chancellor peered at the open page. But this says, lesson one, fairy footsteps, he said. Um, um, I was getting a bit impatient, said the dean. You've never been musical, dean, said Ridcully. It's one of your good points. Why the sudden inch... What have you got on your feet? The dean looked down. I thought you were a bit taller, said Ridcully. You standing on a couple of planks? They're just... 
Thick soles, said the dean. Just just something the dwarfs invented, I suppose. I, I, I don't know, I found them in my closet. Modo, the gardener, says he thinks they're crepe. That's strong language for Modo, but I'd say he's right enough. No, it, it's a kind of rubbery stuff, said the dean dismally. Um, excuse me, Arch-Chancellor? It was the bursar standing in the doorway. A large red-faced man was behind him, craning over his shoulder. What is it, bursar? Um, this gentleman has got a... It's about your monkey, said the man. Ridcully brightened up. Oh, yes. Apparently, um, he stu uh, uh, removed some wheels from this gentleman's carriage, said the bursar, who was on the depressive side of his mental cycle. You sure it was the librarian? said the Arch-Chancellor. Fat, red hair, says Ook a lot. Uh, that's him. Oh, dear. I, I wonder why he did that, said Ridcully. Still, you, you know what they say, a five-hundred-pound gorilla can sleep where he likes. But a three-hundred-pound monkey can give me my bloody wheels back, said the man, unmoved. If I don't get my wheels back, there's going to be trouble. Um, uh, trouble? said Ridcully. Yeah. And don't think you can scare me. Wizards don't scare me. Everyone knows there's a rule that you mustn't use magic against civilians. The man thrust his face close to Ridcully and raised a fist. Ridcully snapped his fingers. There was an inrush of air and a croak. I, I've always thought of it <laughs> more as a guideline, he said mildly. Bursa, go and put this frog in the flower-bed, and when he becomes his old self, give him ten dollars. Ten dollars would be all right, wouldn't it? Croak, said the frog hastily. Good, and now will someone tell me what's going on? There was a series of crashes from downstairs. Why do I think, said Ridcully to the world in general, that this isn't going to be the answer? The servants had been laying the tables for lunch. This generally took some time. Since wizards took their meals seriously and left a lot of mess, the tables were in a permanent state of being laid, cleaned or occupied. Place settings alone took a lot of time. Each wizard required nine knives, thirteen forks, twelve spoons and one rammer, quite apart from all the wine glasses. Wizards often turned up in ample time for the next meal. In fact, they were often there in good time to have second helpings of the last one. A wizard was sitting there now. "'That's recent runes, ain't it?' said Ridcully. He had a knife in each hand. He also had the salt, pepper and mustard pots in front of him, and the cake stand, and a couple of terrine covers, all of which he was hitting vigorously with the knives. Uh, "'What's he doing that for?' said Ridcully. "'And, Dean, will you stop tapping your feet?' "'Well, it's catchy,' said the Dean. "'It's catching,' said Ridcully. The lecturer in recent runes was frowning in concentration. Forks jangled across the woodwork, a spoon caught a glancing blow, pinwheeled through the air and hit the bursar on the ear. "'What the hells does he think he's doing?' "'That really hurt!' The wizards clustered around the lecturer in recent runes. He paid them no attention whatsoever. Sweat poured down his beard. "'He just broke the cruet,' said Ridcully. "'It's going to smart for hours!' "'Ah, yes, he's as hot as mustard,' said the dean. "'I'd take that with a pinch of salt,' said the senior wrangler. Ridcully straightened up. He raised a hand. "'Now someone's about to say something like, "'I hope the watch don't catch up with him, aren't you?' he said. "'Or that's a bit of a sauce. "'Or I bet you're all trying to think of something silly to say about pepper. "'I'd just like to know what's the difference between this faculty "'and a bunch of pea-brained idiots.' "'Ha, ha, ha!' said the bursar nervously, still rubbing his ear. "'It wasn't a rhetorical question.' Ridcully snatched the knives out of the lecturer's hands. The man went on beating the air for a moment and then appeared to wake up. "'Oh, uh, hello, Arch-Chancellor. Uh, uh, is there a problem?' "'What are you doing?' The lecturer looked down at the table. "'He was syncopating,' said the dean. "'I never was.' Ridcully frowned. He was a thick-skinned, single-minded man, with the tact of a sledgehammer and about the same sense of humour, but he was not stupid. 
and he knew that wizards were like weather vanes or the canaries that miners used to detect pockets of gas. They were by their nature tuned to an occult frequency. If there was anything strange happening, it tended to happen to wizards. They turned, as it were, to face it, or dropped off their perch. Why is everyone suddenly so musical, he said, using the term in its loosest sense, of course. He looked at the assembled wizardry, and then down towards the floor. You've all got crepe on your shoes. The wizards looked at their feet with some surprise. My word, I thought I was a bit taller, said the senior wrangler. I put it down to the celery diet. The senior wrangler had a theory that long food, beans, celery and rhubarb, made you taller because of the famous doctrine of signatures. It certainly made him lighter. Proper footwear for a wizard is pointy shoes or good stout boots, said Ridcully. When one's footwear turns creepy, something's amiss. It's crepe, said the dean. It's got a little pointy thingy over the... Ridcully breathed heavily. When your boots change by themselves, he growled. There's magic afoot? <laughs> Good one, senior wrangler, said the dean. I want to know what's going on, said Ridcully in a low and level voice, and if you don't all shut up, there will be trouble. He reached into the pockets of his robe, and after a few false starts, produced a pocket thaumometer. He held it up. There was always a high level of background magic in the university, but the little needle was on the normal mark, on average, anyway. It was ticking backwards and forwards across it like a metronome. A Ridcully held it up so they could all see. What's this? he said. Um... Four-four time, said the dean. Music ain't magic, said Ridcully. Don't be daft. Music's just, just, well, twanging and banging, and... He stopped. Has anyone got anything they should be telling me? The wizards shuffled their blue suede feet nervously. Well, said the senior wrangler, it is a fact that last night, uh, I, uh, that is to say, some of us, um, happened to be passing by the, um, mended drum. Uh, bona fide travellers, said the lecturer in recent runes. It's allowable for bona fide travellers to get a drink at licensed premises at any hour of day or night. City statute, you know. Where were you travelling from, then? Ridcully demanded. Uh, the, the bunch of grapes. That's just around the corner. Yes, but we, 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 we were, we were tired. "'All right, all right,' said Ridcully, in the voice of a man who knows that pulling at a thread any more will cause the whole vest to unravel. "'The librarian was with you?' "'Oh, yes. Go on.' "'Well, the, 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 there was this music.' "'Sort of twangy,' said the senior wrangler. "'Melody led,' said the dean. "'It was sort of, in a way, it... Uh, "'Kind of gets under your skin and makes you feel fizzy,' said the dean. "'Incidentally, has anyone got any black paint? Uh, "'I've looked everywhere.' "'Under your skin,' murmured Ridcully. "'He scratched his chin. "'Oh, dear, one of those. "'Stuff leaking into the universe again, eh? "'Influences coming from outside, yes? "'Remember what happened when Mr. Hong opened his takeaway fish bar "'on the site of the old temple in Dagon Street?' And then there were those moving pictures. I was against them from the start. All those wire things on wheels. This universe has more damn holes in it than a quirm cheese. Well, it's... Lankra cheese, said the senior wrangler, helpfully. That's the one with holes. Quirm is the one with the blue veins. Ridcully gave him a look. Actually, it didn't feel magical, said the dean. He sighed. He was seventy-two. It had made him feel that he was seventeen again. He couldn't remember having been seventeen. It was something that must have happened to him while he was busy. But it made him feel like he imagined it felt like when you were seventeen, which was like having a permanent red-hot vest on under your skin. He wanted to hear it again. I think they're going to have it again tonight, he ventured. We could uh, go along and listen in order to learn more about it in case, it, in case it's a threat to society, he added virtuously. Mm, that's right, Dean, said the lecturer in recent runes. It's, it's our civic duty. Uh, we're the city's first line of supernatural defence. Uh, supposing ghastly creatures started coming out of the air. 
What about it? said the chair of indefinite studies. Well, we'd be there. Yes, uh, that's good, is it? Ridcully glared at his wizards. Two of them were surreptitiously tapping their feet, and several of them appeared to be twitching very gently. The bursar twitched gently all the time, of course, but that was only his way. Like canaries, he thought, or lightning conductors. All right, he said reluctantly, we'll go, but we won't draw attention to ourselves. Certainly, Arch-Chancellor. And everyone's to buy their own drink. Oh. Corporal, possibly Cotton, saluted in front of the fort sergeant, who was trying to shave. It's the new recruit, sir, he said. He won't obey orders. The sergeant nodded and then looked blankly at something in his own hand. Razor, sir, said the corporal helpfully. He just keeps on saying things like, It's not happening yet. Have you tried burying him up to his neck in sand? That usually works. It's a bit, um, uh, oh, uh, uh, a thing, uh, uh, nasty to people. Oh, had it a moment ago. Ah, uh, the corporal snapped his fingers. Uh, uh, that thing, uh, uh, cruel, cruel, that's it. We don't give people the pit these days. This is the... The sergeant glanced at the palm of his left hand, where there were several lines of writing. The... The, the, the foreign legion. Yes, sir. All right, sir. He's, he's weird. He just sits there all the time. We call him Bo Nidal, sir. The sergeant peered bemusedly at the mirror. Uh, it, it is your face, sir, said the corporal. Susan stared at herself critically. Susan. It wasn't a good name, was it? It wasn't a truly bad name, it wasn't like poor old Iodine in the fourth form, or Nigella, a name which means, oops, we wanted a boy. But it was dull. Susan, Sue, good old Sue. It was a name that made sandwiches, kept its head in difficult circumstances, and could reliably look after other people's children. It was a name used by no queens or goddesses anywhere. And you couldn't do much even with the spelling. You could turn it into Susie and it sounded as though you danced on tables for a living. You could put in a Z and a couple of Ns and an E, but it still looked like a name with extensions built on. It was as bad as Sarah, a name that cried out for a prosthetic H. Well, at least she could do something about the way she looked. It was the robe. It might be traditional, but she wasn't. The alternative was her school uniform or one of her mother's pink creations. The baggy dress of the Quirm College for Young Ladies was a proud one, and in the mind of Miss Butts, at least, proof against all the temptations of the flesh. But it lacked a certain panache as a costume for the ultimate reality, and pink was not even to be thought of. For the first time in the history of the universe, a death wondered about what to wear. Hold on, she said to her reflection. Yeah, I can create things, can't I? She held out her hand and thought, cup. A cup appeared. It had a skull and bones pattern around the rim. Ah, said Susan, I suppose a pattern of roses is out of the question. Probably not right for the ambience, I expect. She put the cup on the dressing table and tapped it. It went plink in a solid sort of way. Well then, she said, I don't want something soppy and posy. No silly black lace or anything worn by idiots who write poetry in their rooms and dress like vampires and are vegetarians really. The images of clothes floated across her reflection. It was clear that black was the only option, but she settled on something practical and without frills. She put her head on one side critically. Well, well, maybe a bit of lace, she said, and perhaps a bit more bodice. She nodded at her reflection in the mirror. Certainly it was a dress that no Susan would ever wear, although she suspected that there was a basic Susanness about her which would permeate it after a while. It's a good job you're here, she said, or I'd go totally mad. <laughs> then she went to see her grandfather. Death. There was one place he had to be. Glod wandered quietly into the university library. Dwarfs respected learning, provided they didn't have to experience it. He tugged at the robe of a passing young wizard. There's a monkey runs this place, right? He said. Big, fat, hairy monkey. Hands a couple of octaves wide. 
The wizard, a pasty-faced postgraduate student, looks down at Glod with the disdainful air a certain type of person always reserves for dwarfs. It wasn't much fun being a student in Unseen University. You had to find your pleasures where you could. He grinned a big, wide, innocent grin. Why, yes, he said. I do believe right at this moment he's in his workroom in the basement. But you have to be very careful how you address him. Is that so? said Glod. Yes, you have to be sure to say, Do you want a peanut, Mr. Monkey? said the student wizard. He signalled a couple of his colleagues. That's so, isn't it? He has to say, Mr. Monkey. Oh, oh, yes, indeedy, said a student. Actually, if you don't want him to get annoyed, it's best to be on the safe side and scratch under your arms. <laughs> that puts him at his ease. Uh, uh, and go, Urg, urg, urg said a third student. He likes that. Well, well, thank you very much, said Glod. Which way do I go? We'll show you, said the first student. That's so very kind. Don't mention it. <coughs> Only too glad to help. The three wizards led Glod down a flight of steps and into a tunnel. Light filtered down through the occasional pane of green glass set in the floor above. Every so often, Glod heard a snigger behind him. The librarian was squatting down on the floor in a long, high cellar. Miscellaneous items had been scattered on the floor in front of him. There was a cartwheel, odd bits of wooden bone, and various pipes, rods, and lengths of wire that somehow suggested that around the city people were puzzling over broken pumps and fences with holes in. The librarian was chewing the end of a piece of pipe and looking intently at the heap. "'That's him,' said one of the wizards, giving Glod a push. The dwarf shuffled forward. There was another outburst of muffled giggling behind him. He tapped the librarian on the shoulder. Excuse me. Ooh? Those guys just called you a monkey, said Glod, jerking a thumb in the direction of the door. I'd make them say sorry if I was you. There was a creaking metallic noise, followed very closely by a scuffling outside as the wizards trampled one another in their effort to get away. The librarian had bent the pipe into a U-shape, apparently without effort. Glod went to the door and looked out. There was a pointy hat on the flagstones, trampled flat. That was fun, he said. If I'd just asked them where the librarian was, they'd have said bugger off, you dwarf. You have to know how to deal with people in this game. He came back and sat down beside the librarian. The ape put a smaller bend in the pipe. What are you making? said Glod. Ook, 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 ook. My cousin Modo is the gardener here, said Glod. He says you're a mean keyboard player. He stared at the hands busy in the pipe bending. They were big. And of course, there were four of them. He was certainly partly right, he added. The ape picked up a length of driftwood and tasted it. We thought you might like to play a uh, pianoforte with us at the drum tonight, said Glod. Me and Cliff and Buddy, that is. The librarian rolled a brown eye towards him, then picked up a piece of wood, gripped one end, and began to strum. Hook? That's right, said Glod. The boy with the guitar. Hook, hook, hook. The librarian did a back somersault. Hook, 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 hook. I can see you're in the swing of it already, said Glod. Susan saddled the horse and mounted up. Beyond Death's garden were fields of corn, their golden sheen the only colour in the landscape. Death might not have been any good at grass, black, and apple trees, gloss black on black, but all the depth of colour he hadn't put elsewhere he'd put in the fields. They rippled as if in the wind, except that there wasn't any wind. Susan couldn't imagine why he'd done it. There was a path, though. It led across the fields for half a mile or so, then disappeared abruptly. It looked as though somebody walked out here occasionally and just stood, looking around. Binky followed the path and stopped at the end. Then he turned, managing not to disturb a single ear. I don't know how you do this, Susan whispered, but you must be able to do it, and you know where I want to go. The horse appeared to nod. Albert had said that Binky was a genuine flesh-and-blood horse, but maybe you could be ridden by death for hundreds of years without learning something. He looked as though he'd been pretty bright to start with. Binky began to trot, and then canter, and then gallop, and then the sky flickered just once. Susan had expected more than that, flashing stars, some sort of explosion of rainbow colours, not just a flicker. It seemed a rather dismissive way of travelling nearly seventeen years. The cornfields had gone, 
but the garden was pretty much the same. There was the strange topiary and the pond with the skeletal fish. There were, pushing jolly wheelbarrows and carrying tiny scythes, what might have been garden gnomes in a mortal garden, but here were cheery little skeletons in black robes. Things tended not to change. The stables were a little different, though. Binky was in them for a start. He whinnied quietly as Susan led him into an empty stall next to himself. I'm sure you two know each other, she said. She'd never expected it to work. But it had to, didn't it? Time was something that happened to other people, wasn't it? She slipped into the house. No, I cannot be bidden. I cannot be forced. I will only do that which I know to be right. Susan crept along behind the shelves of lifetimers. No one noticed her. When you are watching death fight, you don't notice shadows in the background. They'd never told her about this. Parents never do. Your father could be death's apprentice and your mother death's adopted daughter, but that's just fine detail when they become parents. Parents were never young. They were merely waiting to become parents. Susan reached the end of the shelves. Death was standing over her father. She corrected herself, the boy who would be her father. Three red marks burned on his cheek where death had struck him. Susan raised a hand to the pale marks on her own face. But that's not how heredity works, at least the normal kind. Her mother, the girl who would become her mother, was pressed against a pillar. She had actually improved with age, Susan thought. Her dress sense certainly had. And she mentally shook herself. Fashion comments, now. Death stood over Mort, sword in one hand and Mort's own lifetimer in the other. You don't know how sorry this makes me, he said. I might, said Mort. Death looked up and looked straight at Susan. His eye sockets flared blue for a moment. Susan tried to press herself into the shadows. He looked back down at Mort for a moment, and then at Isabel, and then back at Susan, and then back down at Mort, and laughed, and turned the hourglass over and snapped his fingers. Mort vanished with a small pop of imploding air. So did Isabel and the others. It was suddenly very quiet. Death put the hourglass down very carefully on the table and looked at the ceiling for a while and then said, Albert? Albert appeared from behind a pillar. Would you be so good as to make me a cup of tea, please? Yes, master. <laughs> you sorted him out right enough. Thank you. Albert scurried off in the direction of the kitchen. Once again, there was the closest thing that could ever be to silence in the room of lifetimers. You'd better come out. Susan did so, and stood before the ultimate reality. Death was seven feet tall. He looked taller. Susan had vague memories of a figure carrying her on its shoulders through the huge dark rooms, but in memory it had been a human figure. Bony, but human in a way that she was certain of, but couldn't quite define. This wasn't human. It was tall and haughty and terrible. He might unbend enough to bend the rules, Susan thought, but that doesn't make him human. This is the keeper of the gate of the world, immortal by definition, the end of everything. He is my grandfather. Will be, anyway. Is. Was. But there was the thing in the apple tree. Her mind kept swinging back to that. You looked up at the figure and thought about the tree. It was almost impossible to keep both images in one mind. Well, well, well. You have a lot of your mother about you, said Death. And your father. How did you know who I am, said Susan. I have a unique memory. How can you remember me? I haven't even been conceived yet. I did say unique. Your name is Susan, but... Susan? said Death bitterly. They really wanted to make sure, didn't they? He sat down in his chair, steepled his fingers and looked at Susan over the top of them. She looked back, matching stare for stare. Tell me, said Death after a while, was I, uh, will I be, uh, am I a good grandfather? Susan bit her lip thoughtfully. If I tell you, won't that be a paradox? Not for us. Well, you've got bony knees. Death stared at her. Bony knees? Uh, sorry. 
You came here to tell me that? You've gone missing, back there. I'm having to do the duty. Albert is very worried. I came here to find things out. I didn't know my father worked for you. He was very bad at it. What have you done with him? They're safe for now. I'm glad it's over. Having people around was beginning to affect my judgment. Ah, Albert. Albert had appeared on the edge of the carpet bearing a tea tray. Another cup, if you would be so good. Albert looked around and totally failed to see Susan. If you could be invisible to Miss Butts, everyone else was easy. If you say so, master. So, said Death, when Albert had shuffled away, I have gone missing, and you believe you have inherited the family business. You. I didn't want to. The horse and the rat just turned up. Rat? Um, I think that's something that's going to happen. Oh, yes, I remember. Hmm. A human doing my job. Technically possible, of course. But why? I think Albert knows something, but he changes the subject. Albert reappeared, carrying another cup and saucer. He plonked it down pointedly on Death's desk, with the air of one who is being put upon. That'll be all, will it, master? he said. Thank you, Albert, yes. Albert left again, more slowly than normal. He kept looking over his shoulder. He doesn't change, does he? said Susan. Of course, that's the point about this place. What do you think about cats? Sorry? Cats. Do you like them? They're, um... Susan hesitated. All right, but a cat's just a cat. Chocolate, said Death. Do you like chocolate? I think it's possible to have too much, said Susan. You certainly don't take after Isabel. Susan nodded. Her mother's favourite dish had been genocide by chocolate. And your memory? You have a good memory? Oh, yes, I, I remember things. About how to be death? About how it's all supposed to work? Look, just then you said you remembered about the rat, and it hasn't even happened. Death stood up and strode across to the model of the Discworld. Morphic resonance, he said, not looking at Susan. Damn. People don't begin to understand it. Soul harmonics. It's responsible for so many things. Susan pulled out Imp's lifetimer. Blue smoke was still pouring through the pinch. Can you help me with this, she said. Death spun round. I should never have adopted your mother. Why did you? Death shrugged. What's that you've got there? He took Buddy's lifetime from her and held it up. Ah, interesting. Do you know what it means, Grandad? I've not come across it before, but I suppose it's possible, in certain circumstances. It means, somehow, that he has rhythm in his soul. Grandad? Oh, no, that can't be right. That's just a figure of speech. And what's wrong with Grandad? Grandfather I can live with. Grandad, one step away from Gramps, in my opinion. Anyway, I thought you believed in logic. Calling something a figure of speech doesn't mean it's not true. Death waved the hourglass vaguely. For example, he said, many things are better than a poke in the eye with a blunt stick. I've never understood the phrase. Surely a sharp stick would be even worse. Death stopped. I'm doing it again. Why should I care what the wretched phrase means, or what you call me? Unimportant. Getting entangled with humans clouds the thinking. Take it from me. Don't get involved. But I am human. I didn't say it was going to be easy, did I? Don't think about it. Don't feel. You're an expert, are you? said Susan hotly. I may have allowed myself some flicker of emotion in the recent past, said Death, but I can give it up any time I like. He held up the hourglass again. It's an interesting fact that music, being of its nature immortal, can sometimes prolong the life of those intimately associated with it, he said. I've noticed that famous composers in particular hang on for a long time. Deaf as posts most of them when I come calling. I expect some god somewhere finds that very amusing.
Death contrived to look disdainful. It's their kind of joke. And, of course, one that misfires. Deafness doesn't prevent composers hearing the music. It prevents them hearing the distractions. He set the glass down and twanged it with a bony digit. It went... He has no life. He has music. Music's taken him over? You could put it like that. Making his life longer? Life is extensible. It happens occasionally among humans, not often, usually tragically, in a theatrical kind of way. But this isn't another human. This is music. He played something on some sort of stringed instrument like a guitar. Death turned. Indeed? Well, well, well. Is that important? It is interesting. Is it something I should know? It is nothing important. A piece of mythological debris. Matters will resolve themselves. You may depend upon it. What do you mean, resolve themselves? He will probably be dead in a matter of days. Susan stared at the lifetimer. But that's dreadful. Are you romantically involved with the young man? What? No. I've only ever seen him once. Your eyes didn't meet across a crowded room or anything of that nature? No, of course not. Why should you care, then? Because he... Because he's a human being, that's why, said Susan, surprised at herself. I don't see why people should be messed around like that, she added lamely. That's all. Oh, I don't know. He leaned down again until his skull was on a level with her face. But most people are rather stupid and waste their lives. Have you not seen that? Have you not looked down from the horse at a city and thought how much it resembled an ant heap, full of blind creatures who think their mundane little world is real? You see the lighted windows, and what you want to think is that there may be many interesting stories behind them, but what you know is that really there are just dull, dull souls, mere consumers of food who think their instincts are emotions and their tiny lives of more account than a whisper of wind. The blue glow was bottomless. It seemed to be sucking her own thoughts out of her mind. No, whispered Susan, no, I've never thought like that. Death stood up abruptly and turned away. You may find that it helps, he said. But it's all just chaos, said Susan. There's no sense to the way people die. There's no justice. Ah! You take a hand, she persisted. You just saved my father. I was foolish. To change the fate of one individual is to change the world. I remember that. So should you. Death still hadn't turned to face her. I don't see why we shouldn't change things if it makes the world better, said Susan. Ha! Are you too scared to change the world? Death turned. The very sight of his expression made Susan back away. He advanced slowly towards her. His voice, when it came, was a hiss. You say that to me? You stand there in your pretty dress and say that to me? You, you prattle on about changing the world? Could you find the courage to accept it, to know what must be done and do it, whatever the cost? Is there one human anywhere in the world who knows what duty means? His hands opened and shut convulsively. I said you must remember. For us, time is only a place. It all spread out. There is what is and what will be. If you change that, you carry the responsibility for the change, and that is too heavy to bear. That's just an excuse. Susan glared at the tall figure. Then she turned and marched out of the room. Susan? She stopped halfway across the floor, but didn't turn round. Yes? Really, bony knees? Yes. It was probably the first piano case that had ever been made, and made out of a carpet at that. Cliff swung it easily onto his shoulder and picked up his sack of rocks in the other hand. Is it heavy? said Buddy. Cliff held the piano up on one hand and weighed it reflectively. A bit, he said. 
The floorboards creaked underneath him. Do you think we should have took all the bits out? It's bound to work, said Glod. It's like a coach. The more bits you take off, the faster it goes. Come on. They set out. Buddy tried to look as inconspicuous as a human can look if he is accompanying a dwarf with a big horn, an ape, and a troll carrying a piano in a bag. I'd like a coach, said Cliff, as they headed for the drum. Big black coach, with all that liver on it. Liver? said Buddy. He was beginning to get accustomed to the name. Shields and that. Oh, livery. Eh, and that. What did you get if you had a pile of gold, Glod? said Buddy. In its bag, the guitar twanged gently to the sound of his voice. Glod hesitated. He wanted to say that for a dwarf, the whole point of having a pile of gold was, was, well, to have a pile of gold. It didn't have to do anything other than just be as oracious as gold could be. Dunno, he said. Never thought I'd have a pile of gold. What about you? I swore I'd be the most famous musician in the world. That's dangerous, that kind of swear, said Cliff. Ook, ook. Isn't it what every artist wants, said Buddy. In my experience, said Glod, what every true artist wants, really wants, is to be paid. And famous, said Buddy. Famous I don't know about said Glod. It's hard to be famous and alive. I just want to play music every day and hear someone say, thanks, that was great, here is some money, same time tomorrow, OK? Is that all? It's a lot. I'd like the people to say, we need a good horn, man, get Glod Glodson. Hmm, sounds a bit dull, said Buddy. I like dull, it lasts. They reached the side door of the drum and entered a gloomy room that smelled of rats and second-hand beer. There was a distant murmur of voices from the bar. Sounds like there's a lot of people in, said Glod. Hibiscus bustled up. You boys ready, then, he said. Hold on a minute, said Cliff. We ain't discussed our pay. I said six dollars, said Hibiscus. What do you expect? You aren't guild and the guild rate is eight dollars. We wouldn't ask you for eight dollars, said Glod. Right. We'll take sixteen. Sixteen? You can't do that. That's almost twice Gildred. But there's a lot of people out there, said Glod. I bet you're renting a lot of beer. We don't mind going home. <sighs> Let's talk about this, said Hibiscus. He put his arm around Glod's head and led him to a corner of the room. Buddy watched the librarian examine the piano. He'd never seen a musician begin by trying to eat his instrument. Then the ape lifted the lid and regarded the keyboard. He tried a few notes, apparently for taste. Glod returned, rubbing his hands. That sorted him out, he said. Ha! How much? said Cliff. Six dollars, said Glod. There was some silence. Yes, sorry, said Buddy. We were waiting for the teen. I had to be firm, said Glod. He got down to two dollars at one point. Some religions say that the universe was started with a word, a song, a dance, a piece of music. The listening monks of the Ramtops have trained their hearing until they can tell the value of a playing card by listening to it, and have made it their task to listen intently to the subtle sounds of the universe to piece together from the fossil echoes the very first sounds. There was certainly, they say, a very strange noise at the beginning of everything. But the keenest ears, the ones who win most at poker, who listen to the frozen echoes in ammonites and amber, swear they can detect some tiny sounds before that. It sounded, they say, like someone counting. One, two, three, four. The very best one, who listened to Basalt, said he thought he could make out very faintly some numbers that came even earlier. When they asked him what it was, he said, It sounds like a one, two... No one ever asked what, if there was a sound that called the universe into being, happened to it afterwards. It's mythology. You're not supposed to ask that kind of question. On the other hand, Ridcully believed that everything had come into being by chance, or in the particular case of the Dean, out of spite. Senior wizards didn't usually drink in the mended drum, except when they were off duty. They were aware that they were here tonight in some sort of ill-defined official capacity, and were seated rather primly in front of their drinks. There was a ring of empty seats around them, but it was not very big because the drum was unusually crowded. Mm, lot of ambience in here, said Ridcully, looking around. Ah, 
I see they do real ale again. I'll have a pint of turbots really odd, please. The wizards watched him as he drained the mug. Ankh-Morpork pork beer has a flavour all its own. It's something to do with the water. Some people say it's like consomme, but they're wrong. Consomme is cooler. Ridcully smacked his lips happily. Ah, we certainly know what goes into good beer in Ankh-Morpork, he said. The wizards nodded. They certainly did. That's why they were drinking gin and tonic. Ridcully looked around. Normally at this time of night there was a fight going on somewhere, or at least a mild stabbing. But there was just a buzz of conversation, and everyone was watching the small stage at the far end of the room, where nothing was happening in large amounts. There was theoretically a curtain across it. It was only an old sheet, and there was a succession of thuds and thumps from behind it. The wizards were quite close to the stage. Wizards tend to get good seats. Ridcully thought he could make out some whispering and see shadows moving behind the sheet. He said, What do we call ourselves? Cleef, Buddy, Glod, and the Librarian. I thought he knew that. No, we've got to have one name for all of us. Oh, are they rationed then? Something like... The Merry Troubadours, maybe. Ooh. Uh, Glod and the Glodettes? Oh, yes. How about Cliff and the Cliffettes? Ooh, 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 ooh. No, we need a different type of name, like the music. Mm. How about Gold? Good dwarf name. No, something different from that. Silver, then. Ooh. I don't think we should name ourselves after any kind of heavy metal glod. What's so special? We're a band of people who play music. Names are important. The guitar is special. How about the band with Buddy's guitar in it? Ooh. Something shorter. Uh The universe held its breath. The band with rocks in... I like it. Short and slightly dirty, just like me. Ooh, ooh. We ought to think up a name for the music, too. It's bound to occur to us sooner or later. Ridcully looked around the bar. On the opposite side of the room was cut-me-own-throat Dibbler, Ankh Morpork's most spectacularly unsuccessful businessman. He was trying to sell someone a felonious hot dog, a sign that some recent surefire business venture had collapsed. Dibbler sold his hot sausages only when all else failed. It wasn't the taste. Plenty of hot dogs taste bad. But Dibbler had now actually managed to produce sausages that didn't taste of anything. It was weird. No matter how much mustard, ketchup and pickle people put on them, they still didn't taste of anything. Not even the midnight dogs they sell to drunks in Helsinki can quite manage that. He gave Ridcully a wave at no charge. The next table was occupied by Satchelmouth Lemon, one of the Musicians Guild recruiting officers with a couple of associates whose apparent knowledge of music extended only to the amount of percussion available on the human skull. His determined expression suggested that he was not there for his health, although the fact that the Guild officers had a mean look about them rather hinted that he was there for other people's health, mostly in order to take it away. Ridcully brightened up. The evening might just possibly be more interesting than he'd expected. There was another table near the stage, he nearly didn't notice it, and then his gaze swivelled back to it of its own accord. There was a young woman sitting there all by herself. Of course, it wasn't unusual to see young women in the drum, even unaccompanied young women. They were generally there in order to become accompanied. The odd thing was that although people were jammed along the benches, she had space all round her. She was quite attractive in a skinny way, Ridcully thought. What was the tomboy word? Gammon or something. She was wearing a black lace dress of the sort worn by healthy young women who want to look consumptive, and had a raven sitting on her shoulder. She turned her head, saw Ridcully looking at her, and vanished, more or less. He was a wizard, after all. He felt his eyes watering as she flickered in and out of vision. Ah, well, he'd heard the two fairy girls were in the city these days. It'd be one of the night people. They probably had a day off, just like everyone else. A movement on the table made him look down. The death of rats scrittered past, carrying a bowl of peanuts. He turned back to the wizards. The dean was still wearing his pointy hat. There was also something slightly shiny about his face. "'You look hot, dean,' said Ridcully. "'Oh, I'm lovely and cool, Arch-Chancellor, I assure you,' said the dean. Something runny oozed past his nose. 
The lecturer in recent runes sniffed suspiciously. Is, is someone cooking bacon? he said. Take it off, Dean, said Red Cully. You'll feel a lot better. Smells more like Mrs. Palm's house of negotiable affection to me, said the senior wrangler. They looked at him in surprise. Uh, I just happened to walk past once. Runes, please take the Dean's hat off for him, will you? said Red Cully. I assure you the hat came off. Something long and greasy, and very nearly the same pointy shape, flopped forward. Um, Dean, said Ridcully, eventually, what have you done to your hair? It, it, it looks like a spike at the front, and a duck's arse, excuse my clatchin, at the back. And it's all shiny. Uh, Lord, that'd be the bacon smell, said the lecturer. Mm, that's true, said Ridcully, but what about the, the floral smell? Mumble, 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 lavender, mumble, 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 said the dean sullenly. Pardon, dean? I said it's because I added lavender oil, said the dean loudly, and some of us happen to think it's a nifty hairstyle, thank you so very much. Your trouble, arch-chancellor, is that you don't understand people of our age. What? You mean seven months older than me? said Red Cully. This time the dean hesitated. What did I just say? he said. "'Have you been taking dried frog pills, old chap?' said Ridcully. "'Of course not there for the mentally unstable,' said the dean. "'Ah, there's the trouble, then.' The curtain went up, or rather was jerkily pulled aside. The band with Roxin blinked in the torchlight. No one clapped. On the other hand, no one threw anything, either. By drum standards, this was a hearty welcome.' Ridcully saw a tall, curly-headed young man clutching what looked like an undernourished guitar, or possibly a banjo that had been used in a fight. Beside him was a dwarf holding a battle horn. At the rear was a troll, hammer in each paw, seated behind a pile of rocks. And to one side was the librarian, standing in front of... Ridcully leaned forward. What appeared to be the skeleton of a piano, balanced on some beer kegs. The boy looked paralysed by the attention. He said, "'Hello, uh, Unc Morpork!' And this amount of conversation apparently having exhausted him, he started to play. It was a simple little rhythm, one that you might easily have ignored if you'd met it in the street. It was followed by a sequence of crashing chords, and then Red Cully realised it hadn't been followed by the chords because the rhythm was there all the time, which was impossible. No guitar could be played like that. The dwarf blew a sequence of notes on the horn. The troll picked up the beat. The librarian brought both hands down upon the piano keyboard, apparently at random. Ridcully had never heard such a din. And then, and then, it wasn't a din any more. It was like that nonsense about white light that the young wizards in the high energy magic building went on about. They said that all the colours together made up white which was bloody nonsense as far as Ridcully was concerned, because everyone knew that if you mixed up all the colours you could get your hands on, you got a sort of greeny-brown mess, which certainly wasn't any kind of white. But now he had a vague idea what they meant. All this noise, this mess of music, suddenly came together, and there was a new music inside it. The dean's quiff was quivering, the whole crowd was moving. Ridcully realised his foot was tapping. He stamped on it with his other foot. Then he watched the troll carry the beat and hammer the rocks until the walls shook. The librarian's fingers swooped along the keyboard, then his toes did the same, and all the time the guitar hooted and screamed and sang out the melody. The wizards were bouncing in their seats and twirling their fingers in the air. Ridcully leaned over to the bursar and screamed at him. "'What?' shouted the bursar. "'I said they've all gone mad except me and you!' What? It's the music. Yes, it's great, said the bursar, waving his skinny hands in the air. And I'm not too certain about you. Ridcully sat down again and pulled out the thaumometer. It was vibrating crazily, which was no help at all. It didn't seem to be able to decide if this was magic or not. He nudged the bursar sharply. This ain't magic. This is something else. Yeah, you're exactly right. Ridcully had the feeling that he suddenly wasn't speaking the right language. I mean, it's too much. Yes, 
Ridcully sighed. Is it time for your dried frog pill? Smoke was coming out of the stricken piano. The librarian's hands were walking through the keys like Cassanunda in a nunnery. Ridcully looked around. He felt all alone. Someone else hadn't been overcome by the music. Satchelmouth had stood up. So had his two associates. They had drawn some knobbly clubs. Ridcully knew the guild laws. Of course, they had to be enforced. You couldn't run a city without them. This certainly wasn't licensed music. If there ever was unlicensed music, this was it. Nevertheless, he rolled up his sleeve and prepared for a quick fireball just in case. One of the men dropped his club and clutched his foot. The other one spun around as if something had slapped his ear. Satchelmouth's hat dented as if someone had just hit him on the head. Ridcully, one eye watering terribly, thought he made out the tooth fairy girl bringing the handle of a scythe down on Satchelmouth's head. The Arch-Chancellor was quite a bright man, but often had trouble enforcing his train of thought to change tracks. He was having difficulty with the idea of a scythe. After all, grass didn't have teeth. And then the fireball burned his fingers, and then, as he sucked frantically at them, he realised that there was something in the sound, something extra. Oh, no, he said, as the fireball floated to the floor and set fire to the bursar's boot. It's alive. He grabbed the beer mug, finished the contents hurriedly, and rammed it upside down on the tabletop. The moon shone over the Clatchian desert in the vicinity of the dotted line. Both sides of it got exactly the same amount of moonlight, although minds like Mr. Cleats deplored this state of affairs. The sergeant strolled across the packed sand of the parade ground. He stopped, sat down, and produced a cheroot. Then he pulled out a match, reached down, and struck it on something sticking out of the sand, which said, Good evening. I expect you've had enough, eh, soldier? said the sergeant. Enough what, sergeant? Two days in the sun, no food, no water. I expect you're delirious with thirst and are just begging to be dug out, hm? Yes, it is certainly very dull. Dull? I am afraid so. Dull? It's not meant to be dull, it's the pit. It's meant to be a horrible physical mental torture. After one day of it you're supposed to be, uh, 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 the... The sergeant glanced surreptitiously at some writing on his wrist. Uh, a, a raving madman. I've been watching you all day. You haven't even groaned. I can't sit in my, 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 my thing. You, you, you sit in it. Uh, there, there, there's papers and things in it. Um, uh, office. Mm, mm, working with you outside like this. I can't bear it. Beau Nidal glanced upwards. He felt it was time for a kindly gesture. Help! 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 he said. The sergeant sagged with relief. This assists people to forget, does it? Forget? People forget everything when they're given their... Um, uh... The pit. Yes, yes, that's it, the pit. Ah, do you mind if I ask a question? What? Uh, do you mind if perhaps I have another day? The sergeant opened his mouth to reply, and the dregs attacked over the nearest sand dune. Music, said the patrician. Ah, tell me more. He leaned back in an attitude that suggested attentive listening. He was extremely good at listening. He created a kind of mental suction. People told him things just to avoid the silence. Besides, Lord Vetinari, the supreme ruler of Ankh-Morpork, rather liked music. People wondered what sort of music would appeal to such a man. Highly formalised chamber music, possibly, or thunder-and-lightning opera scores. In fact, the kind of music he really liked was the kind that never got played. It ruined music, in his opinion, to torment it by involving it on dried skins, bits of dead cat and lumps of metal hammered into wires and tubes. It ought to stay written down on the page in rows of little dots and crotchets, all neatly caught between lines. Only there was it pure. It was when people started doing things with it that the rot set in. Much better to sit quietly in a room and read the sheets, with nothing between yourself and the mind of the composer but a scribble of ink. Having it played by sweaty fat men and people with hair in their ears and spit dribbling out of the end of their oboe, well, the idea made him shudder. 
although not much, because he never did anything to extremes. So, and then what happened, he said. And then he started singing, your honour, said Cumbling Michael, licensed beggar and informal informant. A song about great fiery balls. The patrician raised an eyebrow. And pardon? Something like that. Couldn't really make out the words. The reason being, the piano exploded. Ah, I imagine this interrupted the proceedings somewhat. Nah, the monkey went on playing what was left, said Cumbling Michael. And people got up and, and started cheering and dancing and stamping their feet like there was a plague of cockroaches. And you say the men from the Musicians' Guild were hurt. It were dead strange. They were white as a sheet afterwards. At least, Cumbling Michael thought about the state of his own bedding. White as some sheets. The patrician glanced at his reports while the beggar talked. It had certainly been a strange evening. A riot at the drum, well, that was normal, although it didn't sound exactly like a typical riot, and he'd never heard of wizards dancing. He rather felt he recognised the signs. There was only one thing that could make it worse. Mm, tell me, he said, what was Mr Dibbler's reaction to all this? What, Your Honour? A simple enough question, I should have thought... Cumbling Michael found the words, But how did you know old Dibbler was there? I never said, arranging themselves for the attention of his larics, and then had second, third, and fourth thoughts about saying them. He just sat and stared, Your Honour, with his mouth open, and then he rushed right out. I see. Oh, dear. Thank you, Cumbling Michael. Feel free to leave. The beggar hesitated. Foul old Ron said as your honour sometimes pays for information, he said. Did he? Really? He said that, did he? Well, that is interesting. Veterinari scribbled a note in the margin of a report. Thank you. Er, uh, don't let me detain you. Er, uh, uh, oh, er, uh, uh, no, er, uh, uh, God's bless your honour, said Cumbling Michael, and ran for it. When the sound of the beggar's boots had died away, the patrician strolled over to the window, stood with his hands clasped behind his back, and sighed. There were probably city-states, he reasoned, where the rulers only had to worry about the little things. Barbarian invasions, the balance of payments, assassination, the local volcano erupting. There weren't people busily opening the door of reality and metaphorically saying, Hi, come on in, pleased to see you, what a nice axe you have there. Incidentally, can I make some money out of you since you're here? Sometimes Lord Vetinari wondered what had happened to Mr. Hong. Everyone knew, of course, in general terms. But not exactly what. What a city. In the spring, the river caught fire. About once a month, the Alchemist's Guild exploded. He walked back to his desk and made another brief note. He was rather afraid that he was going to have to have someone killed. Then he picked up the third movement of Fondel's Prelude in G Major and settled back to read. End of CD4